two weeks after my husband passed, I went to the gravesite and I was just sitting there. I was thinking out loud. So not only could the person sitting next to me, the person almost a mile away can hear me. And I was like, why would you do this to me? So then I was like, well, God, I've been sitting here all day waiting on your answer. Why would you take my husband away from me when I have two kids? I'm not an experienced parent. I don't know how to raise kids. What am I supposed to do? And he never answered. So I stood up and I'm like, I hate you. I really do. I hate you. If I hadn't never leave, depended on you, I wouldn't be in this situation. It was the young married Sunday school class. They came out to my house, visit me every day. And that was, that was a real encouragement because I was going through so much that um, just knowing something, that somebody at least cared made a lot of difference. When we're suffering, when we're having a difficult time, God desires for the body of Christ to come forth and minister to us. And by the body of Christ, I mean other Christians. And He has called us to act like a body. And when one part of it hurts, He's called the body to come then and minister, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Then I finally just pray and ask God to, to help me move on with my life, help me. Give me strength to get up out of this bed and take care of my kids. Those are my kids. I have to do it because nobody else can. It's hard raising kids without a father. Being a single parent, I, I have to seek God more and I have to you know, let, let them see the light of God in my life. And if I don't, then His light won't shine in their lives because I have to rely on Him for so much already. I have to rely on him to be a father figure in my household because there's not one. None of us will live lives without suffering, not even without tragedy. Those are parts of life that whether we're lost or saved, we're going to experience. But the thing that's amazing is, is that whenever we weep, he weeps with us. And whenever our lives are broken, He is right in the middle of it with us. God has never promised me that He is going to save me from difficulty. Well, I wanted to start with that video because I believe it sets up so well the passage of Scripture that we have before us today. You see, as Louis said there at the end of that video, God has never promised me that He's going to save me from difficulty. And I think for many of us here this morning, we know the reality of that statement all too well, that unfortunately, we will face times of challenge and difficulty and suffering in our lives. Hard times, times of conflict, uh, work issues, marriage issues, uh, parenting issues, school issues, uh, financial challenges. Times of uncertainty and change where 
You know, yesterday, uh, I was just going about my daily routine. I was feeling healthy. I was feeling fine. But today, I got the test results. And so I'm left wondering, you know, where is God in all of this? What's he doing? Where's, where's God going with all of this in my life? And we're reminded of that reality once again, that God has never promised me that he's going to save me from difficulty. No, in his word, he actually warns me that suffering is coming, that it's a natural, normal part of living out life on a sin-infected planet. And yet this issue of suffering, of why God allows bad things to happen to good people, I mean, regardless of whether you're a believer or not, the whole subject of suffering just always seems to leave us with a lot of questions. C.S. Lewis, the well-known Christian author and scholar, once said this issue of uh, pain and suffering in the life of a believer uh, is atheism's most potent weapon against the Christian faith. And the argument being there that if there really is a God, then why does he allow suffering to continue? Especially in the lives of those who have given it all to follow him. Now that's a really big and important question, and, and, and I don't want to belittle that question this morning by offering you uh, some simple answer. In all honesty, if there is a simple answer, I, I, I don't know what it is. But I do know that when it comes to suffering, if God allowed it, then he has a purpose for it. I do know that whatever you're going through, God saw it coming a long time ago. I do know that God can relate to suffering, that he understands it, that he suffers with us. I do know that sometimes God has to take us uh, through hard times in order to get us to a place where he can, you know, really use us or best use us. I do know that sometimes suffering is about maturing my faith, about growing me up. I do know that God created us with a free will. And that's a good thing in a way because it gives us the ability to really understand what true love is because we can exercise free will, we can give and receive true love, but also that free will allows us to make bad choices and things that cause pain and suffering in our lives and in the lives of others. And so there's a lot of things that we can know for sure about the cause or the, the reason why God allows suffering. But uh, what I really want to focus on this morning and what we come to here in God's Word is really this issue of uh, how God responds to suffering. Not so much the reasons for it, but how, how does God respond? And then in turn, uh, how should we respond? It's just one of the places really where God through His Word um, shines a spotlight, if you will, on this issue of human pain and suffering. So I encourage you once again this morning to uh, get hold of a Bible and open to Acts chapter 5. And uh, we're going to pick up at verse 17 there this morning. And I remind you that uh, this is a continuation of last week, right? This is like part two. Uh, and last week we saw there a picture of what a, of what a God's in it, therefore no stopping at community looks like. And uh, no doubt about it, this is a, this is a happening church that, that we have in front of us here today. 
uh, four, four, five, six, maybe 7,000 people uh, gathered together there in the street. The apostles are uh, performing miracles. People are being healed. A very real sense of God's presence was in that place. I believe there was a sense of the, of the fear of the Lord in that place. Uh, people were coming in. Uh, they were seeking forgiveness. Their numbers were growing. Uh, crowds are even coming in now from outside Jerusalem to, to see people healed, to be part of this community. And so not, a, not really surprising at all that this catches the attention uh, of the religious establishment uh, of the day. Always interesting to me how um, so-called religious people will react when uh, God really starts doing something. It uh, still happens today, by the way. And so God's at work through these apostles and he's building his church. And it says there in Acts 5.17... It says, then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So picture that, the high priest, probably Annas or Caiaphas, one of those guys, not sure which one exactly, but the high priest, all his associates, so I'm not sure what you call these guys, if he's the high priest, maybe they're the low priest, I'm not sure, it doesn't really matter, whatever you want to call them, high priest, his associates, it says they were uh, members of the party of the Sadducees. Uh, interesting, it was, the, it was typically the Pharisees that Jesus was in conflict with. Uh, then, the, then the church starts and you see these Sadducees time and time again. They were the ones that were really, you know, trying to stamp out that early church. Now, part of the reason for that was because uh, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they'd be like, look, you know, once you're dead, you're, you're dead. You just flat out, you don't come back to life. And so you can imagine, I mean, they had a real problem with this whole uh, Jesus rose again uh, teaching. And so they kept, you know, trying to, trying to stamp that out. But, you know, interesting here, um, it's not theology that's bothering them. That really isn't the issue here. It's not, you know, we don't believe what you're saying, so therefore we need to stop you. No, here, listen, it's just plain old, everyday jealousy. And it says they were filled with it. In other words, it's like everybody's paying attention to them and Nobody's paying attention to me. Everybody's over there listening to those guys and nobody's listening to me. Friends, you know what? That's a sad commentary that even happens in the church today sometimes. It's like, look at that church over there. They're doing so much better than we are. How, how come we can't be like them? Or how come everybody's going to her small group and no one wants to come to my small group? Or how come he gets all the attention and I never get any attention over here? I believe it's a mindset that says, or that struggles with celebrating when a new church comes into the area or we see another church that's growing. How come we're not doing that? How come, you know, how come that isn't us? They're going to be taking people away from us. We can't have that. And that's that old comparison game. But you know, bottom line, you know what that is? That's jealousy. It's just flat-out jealousy. It says here these guys were filled with it. Filled with that mindset. So what do they do? Well, verse 18, it says they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now, don't miss this, all right? It says they arrested the apostles and put them in the public 
jail. Now, just let me ask you something here. Maybe, maybe I missed something in my study this last week, but uh, had the apostles done anything wrong before God here at, at, at this point? That he would cause them to allow them to be dragged off to jail? Had they done something wrong? Were they somehow deserving of this? Was there some glaring sin in their lives? And so, you know, God's got to get a hold of these guys. Let's, let's just take a vote. Anybody think that uh, the, the, the apostles deserved uh, to go to jail? Yeah, nobody. Nobody, right? And yet it says here to me, it says, the apostles were arrested. Now surely God wouldn't allow that unless he was trying to punish them for something. I mean, there's got to be a reason. He's, he's trying to teach them something, or it's got to be something, right? I mean, wouldn't that be the way that God would look after his people? And yet, friends, you know what that is right here in front of us this morning? That is a bad thing happening to a good person right there in God's Word. Why do bad things happen to good people? You're looking at it right here. This is a bad thing happening to a good person right here. I mean, think about it. The apostles were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. These guys were out preaching the good news. And yet, folks, listen, God allowed them to be thrown into jail. Now, somebody needs to hear that this morning, that just because we're suffering or we're going through hard times doesn't mean that we have necessarily done something wrong or that God somehow punishing me for something that I did or did or didn't do or, 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 or it's a lack of faith issue. No, you may be going through something today simply because God has allowed that to come into your life. Just because he's allowed it. You say, well, why would God do that? Why would he do that? I mean, if I'm living for him, why would he allow suffering into my life? And you know what? The biblical answer to that question is simply this, because God chose to allow it. Now, he might tell you why today, and you might have to wait until you get to heaven to find out. But you know what's interesting to me? That question never really seemed to bother the early church. And maybe, just maybe, the reason for that is because they remembered what Jesus had said to him there in John 16. The disciples are out standing on a hillside and Jesus is there and he says, he says hey guys, listen, he says, I- I'm going to tell you something that's going to help you, that's going to bring you a sense of peace uh, when you're having to go through hard times. He-, he says, you need to know this, guys, because hard times are coming. In John 16:33, he says, look, here on earth, you'll have trials and you're going to have sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. In other words, suffering's coming, you can count on it. But know this, that I have overcome the world, and therefore I can help you overcome as well. In other words, hold on to me, we'll make it through this thing together. That's Jesus' promise. But you know what I really want you to see here this morning is God's response to suffering. I mean, what does God do when he sees his kids suffering? And I believe there's two answers to that question. We're going to see both of them right here in the text. Here's, 
Here's one of his responses right here. When I'm suffering, watch this. I, I love this part. It says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Now, we read stuff like that in the Bible all the time, and it's like, oh, an angel showed up and opened the doors of the jail, and out they come. No big deal, really. Uh, but, but, but think for a second about what it's saying here. During the night, an angel of the Lord comes along. Now, how many here still believe in angels? Just put up your hand if you believe that there's still angels around. Yeah, most of you do. Uh, interesting, I read an article this past week in uh, Faith Today magazine, and Dr. Roy Matheson was talking about how, you know, here in North America, uh, people give so little thought to the, to the realm of the supernatural or the fact that, you know, maybe there are angels. Uh, but it's interesting, he says, you, you don't have to convince people in the rest of the world. They just know that it's real. It's part of their worldview. There, there's angels, there's demonic forces. I, I mean, they just know it. You don't have to try and convince them. They just know it's a reality. And I don't think here there was any doubt about the reality of this angel either because it says he opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Now remember, we're talking at least 12 guys here, all right? As the apostles, they had the apostles put in jail, so it's got to be 12 of them here, all right? So, so, so think about this. I mean, how did this happen? I, were they awake and all of a sudden, you know, the doors of the jail opened? And, and, and if that's the case, then what about the guards? What did the angel do with the guards? Or, or did he just leave them asleep, somehow carry these 12 guys out, and then they just woke up outside, not really remembering how they got out there, just realizing that somehow they're out? And what about the angel? Could they see the angel? Was there a, was there a visual there? Or did they just somehow... You know, it just happened, and I think that's often how God works in our lives. You know, often God's doing stuff. We don't see what he's doing. We don't see the angels. We just, we're totally unaware. I'm not exactly sure how all it, you know, how it all went down, but, but I do know one thing for sure. I, I do know who did it. God did it. I think that speaks well of the title. When God's in it, there's no stopping it. If he wants his people out of jail, he gets them out of jail. But in this particular case, folks, listen, God chose to respond to the suffering of his people in a miraculous way. Loved ones, don't miss that. Listen, sometimes God chooses to intervene in our lives in a miraculous, incredible way. Loved ones, don't miss that. It's one of the ways that he responds to suffering. And so he has the angel open the doors of the jail. God can do that. He can. He can remove suffering like that in your life if he chooses to do it. He can restore an unfixable situation. He can repair a broken body. He can rebuild a messed up relationship. He can send an angel and overnight it's like that and the suffering is taken away. If God chooses to do that, he can do that. It's one of the ways that he responds to suffering. He can do that. 
And so there they are, they're out of jail. And the angel says to them, verse 20, Go and stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Now, notice that. I believe that shows us something of the reasoning for God's response here. Always for his purpose, right? Always for his glory. Get the message out. Get back in the temple. Start preaching. Get it out there. But just think about that for a moment. If you were Peter and... uh, You've been thrown in jail for talking about Jesus, and this is the second time this has happened, by the way. Happened just back in Acts 4 as well. And you got out of jail. Somehow God miraculously got you out of jail. I mean, wouldn't you just be a teeny little bit nervous of going back and back there and doing that same old thing again? I mean, wouldn't that... I think I'd be taking a few days off or something, you know. I'd be out of jail here for a day or two. I'm going to go and see the water, and then I'll come back to preaching. Yet notice what it says here, right, right at the beginning of verse 21, it says, at daybreak, at daybreak, in other words, the very next morning, they get out the night before, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. Now, don't you just love that? It's like they spend the night in jail, God gets them out, the sun's coming up, and these guys are heading for the temple. Back to the street, back to Solomon's colonnade, back to telling people about Jesus. Friends, you know what that is? That, that, that is wholehearted obedience. Angel told me to do it. I'm just going to go and do it. Now, some of you would say, um, well, of course they would do that. I mean, God relieved their suffering in a supernatural way, and so of course they're going to do what he asks, right? I mean, I, I do the same thing. If God performed some incredible miracle in my life, I mean, whatever he wanted me to do, I'd be on it, you know? But see, when it comes to me, um, God hasn't done anything about my situation yet. And in all honesty, I, I, I feel like I've been in jail for years now, and still, uh, God hasn't done anything in my situation yet, and so in all honesty, uh, I, I'm not feeling a whole lot like doing stuff for Him either, if you know what I mean. And if you're here and that's your thought, just hang on to that for a second, all right? We're going to get to your situation in a minute. But first of all, we're going to see something here that's actually kind of comical, I think, um, just want to read through a bunch of these verses. Just, just try and picture this in your mind. Here's what it says. It says, When the high priest and his associates arrived, in other words, they're over there in the temple court. Remember, Solomon's colonnade is along that one side of the temple. So here's the, the, the high priest and, and his associates, and they're over there in the temple. They arrive. Uh, uh, they called together, says they called together uh, the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Now, that's about 70 people, all right? That includes Pharisees, Sadducees, full assembly of the elders of Israel, the, the Sanhedrin. Uh, that's the group of them. So picture this now. There they are. They're all together over there. Says the high priest sends to the jail for the apostles. We're going to get these guys. We're going to bring them in. Go get them. Verse 22. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. 
And hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Now, if you got that picture in your mind, you got these, these Sanhedrin, all right? There's 70 of these guys um, standing there in the temple, you know, trying to figure out where all this is going, where, where the apostles are. All, all we know is we, we put them into jail last night. That's, that's all we know at this part. But, but, but now it's morning. Uh, went to the jail, uh, opened the doors. Uh, no one there. Guards in place, but no apostles. And so they're all standing there in the temple trying to figure this thing out. And somebody comes along. Now, I, I, I don't know who this guy is, but somebody comes along. And you've got to picture this, right? I mean, the Sanhedrin are there in the temple. The apostles and like five or 6,000 people are just over there. This guy comes along. And, and all I can imagine is that they're in a temple and there must have been some curtains. And this guy comes along and he starts, he starts pulling up the curtains and he's like, he's like, look, look out there. That's what it says. Verse 25, he says, he says, look, the, the, the men you put in jail, they're, they're, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have liked to have been there just to see the look on those guys' faces as they're looking out the way. Oh, there they are, you know? I mean, I just find that funny. I, I just think that's flat out funny, watching that guy do that. I think God has a sense of humor and stuff like that. Well, verse 26... Back to the story again. It says at that the temple or the, at that the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. So now we find them out there. He goes out. He gets these guys. Uh, they didn't use force. Got to be careful because you know there's five or six thousand people around that love these guys. So not going to use. But can you imagine that conversation? It's like, uh, excuse me, Peter, but uh, can you come on with us here for a few minutes? I don't know how they did that, but didn't use force anyway. Uh, feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Now, this is, this is, this is serious stuff again, all right? So, so, I mean, basically, they're under arrest again. This is the third time we've been in jail in the last week. Now, you need to realize, seriously, this is, this is life or death here. I mean, honestly, for the apostles, they don't know what's coming next. I mean, God got us out of jail last night. He, he, he might not do that today. I mean, it could be all over for us by tonight. The high priest had that kind of power. And so there they stand, and they're standing there before the elders of Israel. And the high priest, Annas or Caiaphas, I'm not sure which, I, I, I'm guessing he's probably like, like, like this far away from Peter's nose. I, I can just imagine this. And he says this, verse 28. He, he walks up to Peter and he says, he says, Peter, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. In verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We're witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those 
who obey Him. Imagine Peter saying that. I mean, two months ago, he denied even knowing Jesus to a little servant girl. He's like, blankety-blank, I don't even know who that guy is. And here he is, standing like at the Supreme Court of Canada, and he just lays it all out. Talk about the change that the Holy Spirit brings into the life of a believer. It's incredible. It's incredible here. Well, it says, verse 33, when they heard this, not surprising really, uh, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be put outside for a minute. Interesting, this Gamaliel guy uh, is actually a mentor of the Apostle Paul. We see that later up when Paul, later on when Paul was growing up. Uh, he was actually taught by Gamaliel, this, this, uh, this teacher. And, and so Gamaliel comes up with this idea. He says, listen, guys, we've we, we got to have a little closed-door meeting here for a minute. Just, just calm down. Let's put these guys outside for a second. In verse 35, it says, uh, Then he addressed them, the Sanhedrin. Apostles are outside the door. He says, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these guys. Let's just consider this for a minute. He gives two examples. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. But he was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. Example number two. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and, 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 and he led a, a, a band of people in revolt. But he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these guys alone. Let them go. Now get this, this is important. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But, but, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. In other words, friends, listen, if God's in it, there's no stopping it. That's what he's saying there, and that's an encouraging word for the church. If God's in it, you're not going to stop it. You're going to find yourself fighting against God. And in verse 40, it says, his speech persuaded them. Now back to the topic of human suffering for a second. Seems to me that God has miraculously intervened here again, doesn't it? I mean, God just always seems to get these guys off the hook. No wonder their faith was so strong. No wonder they were doing stuff for God. Because God just always gets these guys off the hook. But you know what? That's not the world that I live in. The world that I live in is a world where good dads die too soon. It's a world where good people get cancer. And so how am I to understand the love of God in my world? Friends, I want you to notice something here. And I'll be candid with you. The first few times I read through this text, I just kind of missed this. Look at verse 40 again for a moment. 
it says, his speech persuaded them. But then notice the next words. Notice what it says. It says, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Folks, listen, Roman flogging was brutal. I don't know how many of you saw Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Passion of the Christ. But that's what it was like. I mean, it was absolutely horrific Roman flogging. They take the shirt off. They beat the front of the person. Then they throw them over something. They whip the back of the person until the flesh is literally torn open on the person's back. Now let me ask you something. Where was God when that was going on? Last night, the angel showed up. Tonight, no angel. Friends, these guys didn't deserve that. Come on. The reality is, when it comes to human suffering... Sometimes God miraculously intervenes. But loved ones, listen. And I say this as gently as I know how. Because when you're in it, these words hurt. But sometimes, God chooses instead to suffer with us. And here he chose to allow that. You say, why? I I don't know why. I don't know why. But it says here, when they were released, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that an incredible response? Even after that, they continued to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Well, we have an opportunity this morning to do that as well. And um, one of the most striking reminders to me of the communion table is the reality that God knows what it is to suffer. It's a great reminder to me that God can relate when I'm going through a hard time. That he, that he meets me there in that in a, in a very special way. I, I believe with all my heart that, that God is truly present in our suffering. I mean, he meets us there in a way that he could meet us no other way. And part of the reason for that is because he understands what it is to suffer. Jesus hung on the cross, undeserving, totally undeserving, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have relationship with a holy God. Now you try and explain that to somebody Why did Jesus do that? I mean, that wasn't fair when you think about it. And yet he chose way back, eternity past, God chose this plan of salvation so that we could be forgiven. 
And we want to proclaim that message in a visual way here this morning. So I'm just going to ask the servers to come on up. And the worship team, if you guys need to go up there. And we're going to take communion together this morning.